This week on New Mexico in Focus, the state's latest PFAS study finds toxins in water across New Mexico. We'll hear from an expert. Trying to identify, address, remediate, and hold people accountable for contamination. And reaction to the arrest of the leader of Cowboys for Trump as presidential power changes hands. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. New beginnings this week as the legislature starts its 2021 session and the Biden administration gets to work. The line opinion panel will touch on both and take a closer look at an immigration plan that would affect New Mexico. And we'll talk to a band manager about the long road ahead for professional musicians who were silenced by COVID and some feel ignored by aid programs. Here's the line. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. Today is Friday, January 22nd, 2021, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Wow, what a week. I'm sure, like me, you're still trying to catch your breath. We saw the inauguration of President Joe Biden on Wednesday. Uh, there were a lot of eyeballs on that and what was going to happen if we were going to have any repeats of January 6th and the storming of the U.S. Capitol. Uh, but by all accounts, it went uh, pretty smoothly. And we are going to uh, talk to some folks about that this week uh, here on the line. And uh, in addition, a big week in the state legislature as the 2021 60-day session kicked off and uh, kicked off unlike any other session. For starters, no state of the state address on the opening day of the legislature. That's because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The public is not allowed into the roundhouse and lawmakers are uh, still working on plans for exactly how to do the session virtually and remotely this year as we all try to stop the spread of COVID-19. Um, we are going to be working with the governor's office to still bring you a state of the state address, and that will likely be sometime next week, looking right now like Tuesday, the 26th, around midday. But uh, keep an eye on our Facebook page and our Instagram page, YouTube, Twitter, and we'll update you and we know all of that for certain. But uh, it's going to be a monumental session, so much important business that needs to be done uh, still around recovery and relief from COVID-19, not to mention the usual course of events. And so we're going to be keeping a very close eye on all of that. We'll talk about that some more in the show this week as well. I want to kick things off with the line this week and that discussion about the start of the legislative session and uh, what to expect, what some of the major issues are going to be, uh, leadership, uh, committee changes, all those sorts of things. We've got a great group of folks to talk to you about that this week. They joined us via Zoom, as they do each week these days. We have line regular Sophie Martin. We also have Steve Terrell, a show favorite. He is, uh, I want to say, recently retired, but it's been over a year now, I believe, since Steve Terrell retired as the capital um, bureau chief, in effect, for the Santa Fe New Mexican. Not sure that was official title, but that's basically what he was. He covered all things legislature for the Santa Fe New Mexican for decades, and he's always got great insight on the inner workings of things there. 
So we're thrilled to have Steve back with us this week. Also, another political animal, T.J. Trout. You know him from KKOB uh, Radio. Uh, He hosts the Afternoon Drive Time show, longtime friend of the show as well. You can often hear our host, Gene Grant, and other line panelists, Merritt Allen, on his show. Turning the table this week, bringing him back on to discuss things. Uh, Always love having T.J. here as well. So we are going to kick things off right there with the 2021 legislative session. Here now, Gene Grant. The first week of the state legislative session is in the books. Frankly, it's been weird. Plexiglass panels divide representatives. There was no state of the state address and little opening day pageantry. Nobody met Wednesday because of inaugural security concerns, as you know, which might have been founded, but didn't amount to anything, thank goodness. Now the lawmaking begins. Appropriately, our three line opinion panelists are joining us by Zoom. One, a very familiar but always welcome face, attorney Sophie Martin. I love that wave, Sophie. And two, we hope that we'll continue to see more of former reporter for the Santa Fe New Mexican, Steve Terrell, and radio personality T.J. Trout, who was, uh, he was the host of his own show on 96.3 KOB, afternoons 3 to 6 p.m. Welcome to all of you. Steve, we start with you, our legislative veteran. Republicans in both chambers are upset about the way the Democratic majority has gone about setting up the session. They say it's not transparent harder to testify in committee and easier to make last minute changes to legislation that gets minimal security. I want to get your early thought on that. What have you sent so far? Well, you know, um, they may actually have a point there about, uh, you know, uh, public access because there is no public access except for Zoom. So yeah, that's, uh, I don't know if I'd do it any differently, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that is a problem. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, when the legislature is in session, those some of those tiny little committee rooms, you know, if you're not there, uh, you know, an hour before the committee meeting meets, you're not going to get a seat. Right. <laughs> so uh, there's access issues even with uh, uh, when there's not a pandemic and it is open. Yeah. Hey, Steve, but, let uh, me let me let me ask you this, Steve. I got another thing for you here. Your old colleague Robert Knott wrote about quote work groups and quote that key lawmakers are assembling instead of conference committees to, co- to conduct ne- negotiations in private. This is vastly the other direction that folks were expecting when transparency was the issue here. I, I'm curious what you think about that. I mean, it, it, it's almost daring people to you know, have a problem with this. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have a problem with that if I was trying to cover the legislature too. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the truth is a lot of people just don't like to do business in public. You know, when people tend to speechify, you know, and make uh, make uh, grand rhetoric uh, when they could just be doing work. Um, so, uh, but uh, yeah, I have a, I have a problem with that. I, I, I can't wait for this thing to be over. <laughs> exactly. Not Normal. the session, but the pandemic. That depend- exactly. Hey, TJ Trout, uh, yes. there's a lot of concerns out there about lobbyists not able to do their thing, so to speak. And, and if you all want to touch on this, that's fine too. Yeah. Um, Access is an issue. We have a citizen legislature. It is all about access, human access. Is the public being served when lobbyists can't get access? You know what, you know what drives me nuts? We got a freaking pandemic going on. And we're, we're, in, we're in new territory here. Nobody's had to go through this before. And so we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants here. Mm-hmm. And it, it just irritates me to no end 
that, uh, look, we have to adapt because if we don't adapt, what are we gonna do? So what's, what are our options here? Uh, do we want to uh, risk uh, people getting infected, sick, possibly dying because uh, some people are insisting that all this stuff gets done in person. I think that is absolutely ridiculous. We have to understand what the country and what we're going through right now. I mean, we have to adapt. We have to adapt right now. It's not gonna work. Now, yesterday I had, um, I was talking on the air about this and I think that the best way with lobbyists to get access, I think every day at noon, you hold a tailgate in the parking lot. You get the brats, you get the beer, uh, you get everybody out there in the parking lot, come together and nice. they can have, they, they can be lobbied, they can express their by... issues and sure, just go crazy. It would see the thing is in the past it would have happened that way behind closed doors anyway. So bring it out of the bring it out into the uh, into the open. Right. You know, have have it in the parking lot. That's right. Sophie, it, you know, if we're laughing, but transparency is like the word around here for the last decade. You know, we need to have some transparency sure. here. That's true. Yeah. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I think about the fact that it was just a few years ago that there was a tremendous amount of pushback against broadcasting uh, legislative sessions right. that you had to actually kind of be in the room for lack of a better way to put it in order to really participate. And I, I think actually of the, um, of the changes to, to, to TJ's point, the, the changes that we've all had to make and, and uh, seeing that how the courts in New Mexico, which is dealing with major constitutional rights issues, et cetera, have, have tried to remain sensitive to, you know, on one hand, we have to balance the rights of the people with, um, with the fact that we have this pandemic going on and, and we need to try to keep people safe. One of the disappointing things I have to say about the state Republican Party's uh, response to these issues is that they haven't come forward with, here's how, you know, if we're concerned about transparency and access and all of those things, which the, the Republicans say they are, um, their, their uh, solution is, let's wait and not have our legislative session right now. But I think most New Mexicans would probably agree that waiting even longer than we've had to wait for solutions from our government mm -hmm. is, not, is not in fact a good option. Um, and so I would have liked to have seen the Republicans come with more constructive ideas like, like the tailgate idea, um, which, which I had heard before, I really like. Um, it's it's going to be cold, but okay. Um, but, but this is the thing. If we're all operating in goodwill, um, and I think, you, you know, you may have your opinions about that. If we're all operating in goodwill, okay, so bring it. What are your proposals besides right. let's just not have government for several more months? Good point there. Or showing up at the, at the, uh, on the first day, almost like a stunt. Hey, Steve, I got yeah. an interesting question for you. This, this has been an interesting thing. Uh, there's always a lot of complaints that you know power is held in committee chair seats on the both House and Senate side by folks in the Rio Grande Valley, basically. A lot of Santa Feans holding, you know, tough seats. But we have two Gallupites, so to speak, <laughs> now holding some pretty killer seats, finance and appropriations. And I, I'm just curious where you see the committee chair uh, power shift happening. What, what's your sense of it so far at this point in the session? I was pretty surprised that uh, Mimi Stewart, who's a new uh, Senate president pro tem, uh, went ahead and appointed George Munoz, who is one of the more conservative Democrats in the whole uh, uh, Senate caucus uh, uh, to that post. Um, I, I've nothing against George myself, but uh, he, of all those, uh, he was the only one who survived of that whole conservative uh, moderate Democrat uh, group that was uh, targeted. Yep. 
and he, he survived and now he's a finance chairman. That did surprise me. Uh, I saw Joe Monahan making a speculation that there's probably some deal uh, uh, between them uh, and that he's, he may be very well right there. Um, but, 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 but Steve, uh, don't you think, you know, Mimi Stewart, you mentioned her. I got to think there's got to had to have been a conversation between her and Mr. Munoz about when she can expect certain bills to to draw. Do you know what I mean? This is not something she's just going to take a chance at by appointing this seat. Am I wrong? Yeah, on she, that? she is not stupid. No, right. uh, me, uh, Mimi's pretty sophisticated when it comes to stuff like that. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So that that probably was part of the the deal that you know that we're all speculating about. Mm -hmm. can, mm -hmm. I jump, can I just please. jump in on that? Please. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting. I, I, I noticed the quote from Mimi Stewart about the appointment. She didn't say, at least not the quote that I saw, she didn't say, we're so thrilled, this is gonna be you know, a grand new era. She said, he was the next in line. And yeah. that suggested, yeah. you know, that, that suggested to me that there, perhaps to Steve's point, there was sort of something, something going on there. Um, but it, it did sound like, okay, well, here's what I got. Here's right. how I can justify this. He was the next in line. That's interesting. We'll see how that plays out. Hey, TJ, I got another one here too. It's yep. interesting. Uh, payday right. lending has reappeared. Payday, you know, uh, there's right. now an idea to cap the 175% interest rate down to 36%. And, you know, just, I don't know, any sense where lawmakers, can we finally get somewhere on this issue? Is this the time to get payday lending wrestled to the ground? Sure. <laughs> Good time. I mean, obviously, there's a problem. Uh, anything that charges 175% interest, I mean, you, you kind of got to look at it. I, uh, to your point, I mean, mm -hmm. yes, I mean, we have so many other pressing, pressing issues right now. That uh, may, may, maybe maybe it's not that I can I bring up one of my pressing issues. Do Please. you mind? If I, yeah, I'm no, I don't mind at all. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my pet issues this year in the state legislative session is Wi-Fi for the entire state. Ah. Uh, we, we've been we've been discussing. I don't mean to wrest control from you, but but I mean it's, it's something. Topic. It's always been my that Wi-Fi should be treated like a public public utility. Uh, you know, and, and at this point should be required. Uh, they should be required to provide state access, even in remote areas. And I think this is so important when you consider the state of our education system right now and what we're going through with the pandemic. I mean, if you got all these school kids who are who do not have access to Wi-Fi, how are they going to learn remotely? Uh, and so I, I just hope something is moved forward there this time. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, for what for what it's worth, had to bring that up. Sorry. No, I, I no need to apologize. That's a great su subject. We talk about it a lot. I, well, I remember talking mm -hmm. about that like yep. 20, 20 some years ago. There yeah. are parts of the state that, frankly, what you know, where will I plug in my computer because there's no electricity? Um, but the Wi-Fi, you know, the the Wi-Fi has been an issue throughout, and we still haven't we still haven't fixed it. And here we are. To TJ's point, it's a crisis. It's a crisis oh, for you know. This, this poor kid who has to go, the, I mean, he's, he's, they've resolved the issue then, but national, international news in New Mexico kid goes and sits outside a library every day. You remember that earlier yep. in 2020 yep. in order to yep. be able to attend school, kids and other, you know, going to McDonald's to try and attend school. It's, it's beyond, I think it's beyond time. And it kind of goes back to that issue of, of the, the legislation, the legislature how do you have access to the legislature? Well, it's an opportunity, right? Because you don't have to drive to Santa Fe, but not if there's no Wi-Fi in your community. That's right. Good point, So, there. yes, I, I'm applauding you, TJ. I agree. Good stuff, TJ. Absolutely. We're out of time on that one. When this group comes back, we'll talk about Joe Biden's immigration plan.
Over the course of the past year, you've probably heard us talk about our special investigative project, Groundwater War. If that doesn't ring a bell, a bell by now I'm sure PFAS chemicals does ring a bell. These are a family of thousands of chemicals uh, that um, are known to have health risks and are also known to be very hard to clean up, and they've been identified at uh, around seven military installations in New Mexico uh, in the groundwater, Um, and we've been following this story for a year in large part because the military has not shown any interest or movement in addressing the problem, cleaning it up, even mapping out the problem. In fact, some of that's tied up in litigation between the military and the state of New Mexico. But the the state environment department uh, is moving ahead with what they can do to try to identify and uh, rectify this situation um, and you can find a lot of great reporting from our land correspondent Laura Paskus on the Groundwater War website, which is on the, you can find a link to it on the front page of the nmpbs.org website. And there's a new report there as well as a new interview that we want to make you aware of. Uh, again, the Environment Department has, in their next steps, gone about testing for uh, these chemicals, these PFAS chemicals at uh, uh, more than a dozen uh, key areas, places in a dozen key areas around the state. And it's sort of a mixed bag of results that they released here in the last uh, week to 10 days. The good news is uh, no alarming amounts of these chemicals found. And again, these don't all have to be uh, attributed to military installations where they used firefighting foam that had these chemicals in them for years. They no longer use those foams, but um, these chemicals are also in things like nonstick pans. They're in dental floss. They are in microwave popcorn uh, and waterproofing chemicals. Uh, And so there's a lot of places these chemicals can come from. But again, because they don't break down and they bioaccumulate, it's a very serious issue, and this is the first step in getting a handle on that. So, again, the good news is is that uh, there were no alarming numbers found in any of the new testing that the state did. But on the flip side, uh, these chemicals have been found in in trace amounts uh, in all kinds of places, including uh, areas near the Rio Grande, near the Gila River, the Pecos River, and so it just really starts to bring home the seriousness of this if we can't get a full scope of the issue and the contamination and the cleanup that needs to happen next. And so uh, there's a great write-up on all of this on the Groundwater War website. Right now, we want to play you part of an episode, or part of an interview we did with uh, a representative from the Environment Department, Rebecca Roos, really talking about their process for this testing and a little bit more about what they found and what next steps are and what you can do. Uh, And so, again, go to the Groundwater War website at nmpbs.org and uh, give this a listen as a little bit of a primer for what you'll find in that article. Here now, Laura Paskus. The past couple of years, the focus has largely been around Cannon Air Force Base and Clovis and Holloman Air Force Base outside of Alamogordo. Um, and it, if I understand correctly, this study is taking a broader view of looking around the state. Can you describe sort of geographically where these sampling locations 
are to start with? Sure, yeah, this really does represent uh, an important uh, concrete shift for the department to more proactive work on the topic of PFAS, which is really exciting for us. It's still incredibly important that we carry out and continue our work to address the PFAS contamination that is well known at uh, Department of Defense facilities in our state. So that is very much still a focus and ongoing, but here we are able to be more proactive in uh, finding out more on our own uh, about where, where PFAS may be. So we've selected sites around the state in um, 16 counties uh, and there are a number of, as I said before, uh, locations where we're testing groundwater uh, sources and then a number of locations where we're testing surface water. And it really does cover a, a large um, portion of the state with different sampling sites around the state uh, with some emphasis in areas where we know uh, that there are potential sources of PFAS. There's been a lot of research and study, uh, a lot of other states and federal agencies doing analysis for a number of years about where does PFAS come from? Like if it shows up in our water, uh, where, where might it be coming from? And so we were able to do some analysis of the types, types of industrial activities that can be associated with PFAS and then make some strategic decisions about where to best deploy our limited sampling resources as a starting point. And in New Mexico, in addition to military installations, what are some of the businesses or industries where you're maybe looking at a little more closely? Well, and we're looking at places nearby certain types of industries, not targeting particular um, businesses or uh, industrial plants uh, themselves. So in terms of what those sectors are that are indicators that we might want to test for PFAS in the water, um, that includes uh, electroplating, and um, uh, there's uh, a well-known uh, association with PFAS for nonstick pan manufacturing, those types of things, things that are nonstick uh, fireproof materials. So it's common to, for us to be looking around any places that might deploy firefighting materials on a routine basis, airports, uh, fire departments. Uh, fire station training facilities, things like that. So as these sampling results have been coming in, are there spots in New Mexico where you're seeing PFAS detected in water sources? So that's a great question. And this is uh, what we're announcing this week is our first collection of new data um, from a number of different sources. And there are we tested for uh, over 20 different PFAS contaminants for which there are approved analytical methods to look for the chemicals in the labs. And we've, good news is we haven't found anything that's alarming to us from a public health standpoint at, at this stage. We're gonna put all the data, uh, it's gonna be available to the public on our website and we'll be here to answer questions if people have concerns. Uh, and we've sent uh, letters to each of the public water systems that are associated with one of our uh, test sites so that they are, can become more familiar with what we looked for and what we found. Um, we did find, and some of our sampling sites, low levels of 
PFOA and PFOS, two of the most commonly talked about PFAS chemicals. Um, nothing anywhere near what is the current EPA lifetime health advisory of 70 parts per trillion. And, uh, and then for some other the, the PFAS chemicals, we saw some results in both the surface water and the groundwater. And uh, again, at this point, we're, we're very pleased to see that so far we're learning a lot, but we're also not seeing anything to cause us a lot of concern or alarm. It's gonna help us do better work going forward to have as much data as we possibly can as well. So sort of the next phases of the studies, are there certain places that you'll focus on more intensely or how will the, the next phases go? Well, it's there as we move forward, we've, we sort of at the beginning of the study identified what we were hoping to cover throughout the course of the study as, as we continue to do more sampling over time. So we've identified uh, the sites around the state, again, both groundwater and surface water that uh, the, our, our sampling team, which includes the US Geological Survey uh, that's helping with the actual collection and analysis of the samples, um, they'll be getting out uh, in many of the same counties that we've been to so far, but at additional locations and uh, providing more, more data over more coverage across the state as we go forward. One of the things that we often struggle with is um, not wanting to alarm people about um, toxic chemicals in their water supplies, but also not in any way wanting to diminish the fact that there are public health risks to, to um, exposure to PFAS. And I'm curious how, how the department balances that, especially in an arid state like New Mexico, where not just drinking water, but any type of water is really important to the state and to the state's sustainable future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the when you know I, I run the water protection division, so we're thinking about water quality across so many different issues and angles, and we are every day trying to identify, address, remediate, and hold people accountable for contamination where we have it, including but absolutely not limited to PFAS. And we, we don't want to take anything for granted with our water resources in the state. Um, it's partly why we continue to raise um, externally, uh, Secretary Kenny, our cabinet secretary and others, how important it is that we give the state a chance to tackle water quality in every, in every way we possibly can by making sure that we're putting enough resources to these critical issues. And right now we, we are, having to make really tough choices at the department of how many people can we have thinking about and working on PFAS because then we aren't tackling maybe other types of contamination, other sources of, of water quality concerns. Maybe we're having to pull back other types of water quality monitoring in the field because we're ramping up in other areas. We're making those kinds of tough choices every day and, uh, and that limits our ability to really uh, tackle all of the problems as, as cohesively and comprehensively as we'd like to. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for joining me. I appreciate your work. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
One of the things we love here at New Mexico and Focus about this podcast is the ability to uh, give you a little bit more than we have time for in the show on air in a given week. And so we wanted to take this time. We just played for you uh, less than half of that interview with Rebecca Roos of the New Mexico Environment Department about the PFAS testing. But this podcast gives us the opportunity to play the entire interview for you. A lot more information um, about the PFAS problem why these things are so complicated. Something I didn't mention earlier, but we've talked about uh, time and time again, is the fact that this is all complicated by the fact that there's no federal limit on uh, exposure to these PFAS chemicals. So without that, enforcement becomes a really tricky issue. The state knows about all this, is working on all this. We should also point out that the Environment Department has a huge role to play in COVID-19 response as well. Uh, in terms of when there is an outbreak in a business. They're the ones who uh, track that and, and help to deal with that. Uh, but they are keeping an eye on the PFAS problem, as are we. So before we let this go for the week, wanted to give you that full interview. And if you want to get back to the regular show, you can fast forward now about 19 minutes. But here again, Laura Paskus. Good morning, Rebecca. It's nice to see you. As I understand it, New Mexico Environment Department has some um, sampling results that have been coming out recently. Can you talk a little bit about the study that you're doing and, and what you have found out? Hello, Laura. Good morning. It's nice to talk with you. And thanks for your ongoing interest and coverage of this important topic about uh, PFAS chemicals in our environment and what we're doing to better understand that in the state of New Mexico and make some informed decisions about how best to protect public health from these forever chemicals as they're often referred to. Earlier in uh, about mid 2020, we entered into a partnership where we were able to start getting out into the field and conducting sampling around the state at a number of selected sites it's launched a two-year study about uh, where we're going to be able to gather a lot more information than we've had to this point about which types of PFAS chemicals that we're able to test for are in our environment, in drinking water sources, um, both groundwater and surface water sources, and at what levels. And how that'll help us better understand uh, what kind of exposure uh, some of our community members might be experiencing, um, if any, and it'll also help us better understand which types of these chemicals we have in our state so that we can be uh, conducting more sophisticated analysis uh, and, and developing strategies and procedures to make sure that we're doing everything that we can with the resources that we have to protect public health and also then using that to fight for additional resources to make sure that we can do everything possible um, where if, if in fact we do find that we we have PFAS contamination where we didn't previously know about it. So the past couple of years the focus has largely been around Cannon Air Force Base and Clovis and Holloman Air Force Base outside of Alamogordo um, and it if I understand correctly, this study is taking a broader view of looking around the state. Can you describe sort of geographically where these sampling locations are to start with? Sure, yeah, this really does represent uh, an important 
uh, concrete shift for the department to more proactive work on the topic of PFAS, which is really exciting for us. It's still incredibly important that we carry out and continue our work to address the PFAS contamination that is well known at uh, Department of Defense facilities in our state. So that is very much still a focus and ongoing, but here we are able to be more proactive in uh, finding out more on our own uh, about where, where PFAS may be. So we've selected sites around the state in um, 16 counties uh, and there are a number of, as I said before, uh, locations where we're testing groundwater uh, sources and then a number of locations where we're testing surface water. And it really does cover a, a large um, portion of the state with different sampling sites around the state uh, with some emphasis in areas where we know uh, that there are potential sources of PFAS. There's been a lot of research and study, uh, a lot of other states and federal agencies doing analysis for a number of years about where does PFAS come from? Like if it shows up in our water, uh, where, where might it be coming from? And so we were able to do some analysis of the types, types of industrial activities that can be associated with PFAS and then make some strategic decisions about where to best deploy our limited sampling resources as a starting point. And in New Mexico, in addition to military installations, what are some of the businesses or industries where you're maybe looking at a little more closely? Well, and we're looking at places nearby certain types of industries, not targeting particular um, businesses or uh, industrial plants uh, themselves. So in terms of what those sectors are that are indicators that we might want to test for PFAS in the water, um, that includes uh, electroplating, and um, uh, there's uh, a well-known uh, association with PFAS for nonstick pan manufacturing, those types of things, things that are nonstick, uh, fireproof materials. So it's common to, for us to be looking around any places that might deploy firefighting materials on a routine basis, airports, uh, fire departments. Uh, fire station training facilities, things like that. So as these sampling results have been coming in, are there spots in New Mexico where you're seeing PFAS detected in water sources? So that's a great question. And this is uh, what we're announcing this week is our first collection of new data um, from a number of different sources. And there we tested for uh, over 20 different PFAS contaminants for which there are approved analytical methods to look for the chemicals in the lab. And we've, good news is we haven't found anything that's alarming to us from a public health standpoint at, at this stage. We're gonna put all the data, uh, well, it's gonna be available to the public on our website and we'll be here to answer questions if people have concerns. Uh, and we've sent uh, letters to each of the public water systems that are associated with one of our uh, test sites so that they are, can become more familiar with what we looked for and what we found. Um, we did find and some of our sampling sites, low levels of PFOA and PFOS, two of the most commonly talked about PFAS chemicals, um, nothing anywhere near 
what is the current EPA lifetime health advisory of 70 parts per trillion. And, uh, and then for some other the, the PFAS chemicals, we saw some results in both surface water and the groundwater. And uh, again, at this point, we're, we're very pleased to see that so far we're learning a lot but we're also not seeing anything to cause us a lot of concern or alarm. It's gonna help us do better work going forward to have as much data as we possibly can as well. So one of the things that I've consistently heard from public health experts is that there is this lifetime health advisory that the EPA has right now, which as, as you and I have talked about extensively is not a, a health regulation not a federal regulation or federal limit in, in that sense, but that sort of any exposure to PFAS is not a good thing for, for human bodies. Um, so if people find out that there is PFAS in their water systems and their drinking water supplies, what is the expectation for utilities or well owners to eliminate any exposure? That's a tough question, right? Because there's a lot that we don't know yet. And, and we're working off of the best information that's available, but those uh, public water systems that are deliver delivering, treating and delivering the water to their customers, they aren't obligated to take action for the reasons that you just said, because there isn't a limit that they are required to meet for any PFAS chemical as of today, right? And so what we do is we're here to um, walk through options with public water systems. The Department of Health uh, in the state also is available to help provide information. And uh, if there are concerns on the part of the water system or their customers, then there are options available for uh, water systems to look at treatment, to explore that and see if that's something that they would wanna embark on. And at this point, you know, we haven't seen anything like that in New Mexico, uh, to, to our knowledge. Um, we don't have public water systems that are actively treating uh, to remove PFAS chemicals. But in, it'll, it'll be, I think, a lot on the public water system themselves, that utility and their customers kind of decide what, what their risk level, comfort level is. And, and we're here to help them work through options if, if they want that kind of support from us. And what are some of the communities or water systems that you're seeing PFAS appearing in the sampling results? Um, there's, uh, an, in Otero County, in Alamogordo, which is where Holloman Air Force Base is. So that's, that's one site where we saw some low level uh, contamination show up, uh, low level uh, registered contaminants, I should say. Uh, we don't have the science to, to kind of characterize that water then as being contaminated. And there's some source water sites in uh, Southern Bernalillo, Bernalillo County where we saw some levels of uh, several of the different PFAS chemicals that we tested for. And uh, that, I'm not sure off, off the top of my head, which, which public water system might be closest to those sites. But uh, we've looked in uh, Doña Ana County, San Juan County, Otero County, Bernalillo County are a few of the counties where we've seen some uh, detects on some of these chemicals. 
and and all of that information will be posted for people to to dig into a little deeper as well. So sort of the next phases of the studies, are there certain places that you'll focus on more intensely or how will the, the next phases go? Well, it's there as we move forward, we've we sort of at the beginning of the study identified what we were hoping to cover throughout the course of the study as, as we continue to do more sampling over time. So we've identified uh, the sites around the state, again, both groundwater and surface water that uh, the, our, our sampling team, which includes the US Geological Survey uh, that's helping with the actual collection and analysis of the samples, um, they'll be getting out uh, in many of the same counties that we've been to so far, but at additional locations and uh, providing more, more data over more coverage across the state as we go forward. I feel like PFAS sort of exemplifies this really tricky situation that we often find ourselves in with pollutants where um, there is a party that's responsible for a pollutant, whether it's, um, you know, in, in the case of the military, the use of firefighting foams that are manufactured by another company, or, you know, you mentioned some of the, the other industries. And then you have a public health, um, waters, a public water supply that's serving customers. And then you have those customers, and then you have the sort of matrix of federal and state regulators. And yet, because there is no federal health limit, regulatory limit for PFAS, um, I feel like it's sort of an overwhelming and confusing issue for the public because you don't know, you might know who's responsible for the pollution, but it's not clear who's responsible, if anyone, for cleaning it up or even regulating it. So I'm wondering if you can help our audience sort of navigate that confusion. That's, you, you lay out the complexity of this very well. And what we're trying to do here is start to put together some really key building blocks for future um, decision-making and better understanding uh, as a regulatory agency to then also better help the public understand where things are when to be concerned or not, or you know, maybe take some action, but not urgent action. There's so many response level options and we're still in such of a learning mode that we first wanna start off by figuring out what do we have in the state of New Mexico outside of the Department of Defense facilities where we know there's contamination. What else is out there? Where Once we know what's out there, which types of PFAS, which chemicals, that helps us then start to understand what those sources might be in our state that are actually contributing to PFAS in the environment. And the more that we gather this information and uh, are able to add resources at the department to get our arms around it, um, we will be able to better help the public navigate it, better help local officials know how to navigate it, um, better uh, recommend changes to our existing regulatory authorities in the state so that we can take action against culpable parties if and when we identify that they're there. And what is, make sure that there are provisions in place to establish the culpability as well so that we can hold um, parties accountable if they've contributed 
to, uh, you know, illegally and inappropriately putting this, this uh, pollution out into our environment. So there's a lot that's still not all tied together yet, which is I think why it does seem so disjointed and confusing uh, at this stage. And we're, we're chipping away at that uh, deliberately and thoughtfully rooted in strong science and to build a program as best we can to over time continue to take these conversations with you, with others in the public um, to the more of a graduate level. Uh, whereas right now we're sort of at an elementary level of, of talking about um, what we know and, and in, to a large extent what we don't know and the questions that we're asking. One of the things that we often struggle with is um, not wanting to alarm people about um, toxic chemicals in their water supplies, but also not in any way wanting to diminish the fact that there are public health risks to, to um, exposure to PFAS. And I'm curious how, how the department balances that, especially in an arid state like New Mexico, where not just drinking water, but any type of water is really important to the state and to the state's sustainable future. Yeah, the, when, you know, I, I run the water protection division. So we're thinking about water quality across so many different issues and angles. And we are every day trying to identify, address, remediate, and hold people accountable for contamination where we have it, including, but absolutely not limited to PFAS. And we, we don't wanna take anything for granted with our water resources in the state. Um, it's partly why we continue to raise um, externally, uh, Secretary Kenny, our cabinet secretary and others, how important it is that we give the state a chance to tackle water quality in every in every way we possibly can by making sure that we're putting enough resources to these critical issues. And right now we we are having to make really tough choices at the department of how many people can we have thinking about and working on PFAS because then we aren't tackling maybe other types of contamination, other sources of, of water quality concerns. Maybe we're having to pull back other types of water quality monitoring in the field because we're ramping up in other areas. We're making those kinds of tough choices every day and, uh, and that limits our ability to really uh, tackle all of the problems as, as cohesively and comprehensively as we'd like to. And even if somebody doesn't live someplace close to a military base or one of these other sources, um, why should New Mexicans in general care about PFAS and what the department is doing right now? That's a great question. You know, some people are gonna feel like this hits a lot closer to home than others. But one thing about New Mexicans is that they care deeply about their water. And I think the more that people understand the, the potential for contamination from PFAS chemicals in our surface waters, in our drinking water sources across the state, um, they're going to wanna pay attention because they care not just about the water that they, their family and their neighbors drink, but about the whole state. And uh, we're, we're large in, in geographic size, but we're small in interconnectedness. And uh, this, this is something that is gonna be 
an issue for us to be tackling for a very long time. We do not know the extent of uh, how much we have to tackle yet in the state, but that's partly where, where we're headed is to better understand that. And uh, I think that this is going to be something that touches people's uh, values and attachment to water resources and natural resources and public health uh, all across the state, the more we, we learn and the more we can share information. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for joining me. I appreciate your work. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. It was a busy week indeed for our new president, Joe Biden. On his first day, hours after the inauguration, he signed a slew of executive orders. He signed a slew more on Thursday around COVID relief. Uh, the action is coming fast and furious. And we wanted to take a moment to talk about one issue in particular that President Biden has uh, pointed to as a big priority for him, and that is immigration reform. He unveiled a lot of the elements to his, to his proposed immigration plan that uh, we will probably start in through the process of moving through Congress fairly soon. And that's where we're going to pick things back up with the line. Again, uh, you will hear Sophie Martin in here talk about how this is such an important issue, obviously on our southern border, which is right near and touches Mexico in some places, but it, it really is something that impacts our entire state. And so we should all be keeping a close eye on how this goes. One of those first executive orders the president signed was to stop funding and building of the wall. Uh, we were talking about it yesterday. We're pretty sure the entire wall has been built in New Mexico to this point. May not be entirely right about that, but again, what that means for enforcement and other things, as well as the president's plan for uh, an eight-year strategy for people to get legal citizenship. And so we want to just uh, get some thoughts and initial reactions from the line panel, not only on the president's plan, but uh, the likelihood that we might actually see some true immigration reform after years of uh, stagnant action on this issue. It's very political. We get that. But um, there are some things that, as you will hear Steve Terrell talk about, there seems to be some pretty widespread agreement on. So this may be the time where we actually see some movement on these things. But here now, more on that with host Gene Grant and The Line. Incoming presidents are supposed to think big. At least that's what we've come to expect. And Joe Biden has his sights set on immigration reform. The Biden plan does not include more border wall construction, as you might imagine. It does include a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants and a fast track for some essential workers and people protected under the DACA program. Now, TJ... Let me start there. This is a huge swing to take at first pitch. Just the same though, both Republicans and Democrats want reform. They do want reform. Everybody right. wants reform. What do you see yeah. here from this early? Well, I'll tell you what, I've, I've, Gene, I've said this from the beginning, uh, uh, that uh, if Biden really wanted to start to unite us all and make peace with the other side, he should choose an issue that is important to the other side, very important to them. I suggested this way back that coming up with a bipartisan, common sense, immigration and border security plan would be the perfect way to start. Mm -hmm. Now, now of, of course, what's gonna happen, he is going, he's got his plan that's gonna go to Congress. And I'm sure what he is proposing would not be the end all, 
Uh, I'm sure it will be debated. Hopefully it will be debated. They will come up with a bipartisan plan and then send it back to them. But, uh, you know, I mean, I mean it's, it's a huge issue. Um, I talked to Steve Pierce a couple of years ago about this, and he said, look, this, this actually is, is simpler than you think. He says uh, there is so much consensus on both sides with common sense border security and immigration that it can become it, it, it can be solved, he said. And, you know, Steve Pierce tells me this can be solved working in a bipartisan manner. I tend to I tend to believe him. I'm actually touching my earpiece. Make sure I heard that correctly. That, that's, that's amazing. Well, wow. Right. Right. So, uh, yes, I, I, I think it was I think it was a, a brilliant first move on, on the Biden administration's part. I mean, again, I, I just want to reiterate what's going to go to Congress is not what we're going to see come out of Congress. Good point. Good point. Hey, Sophie, and on that note, Sophie, interesting. TJ just put it up that way. <laughs> Early reaction, Marco Rubio, Chuck Grassley, Tom Cotton. The amnesty word is back and it didn't take but three hours to throw it out there after Biden put the plan out. What's your sense of it? It's interesting that you bring up Marco Rubio. And and before I sort of launch into him, I just want to make the point that that this issue, the immigration issue, really touches New Mexico from the southern border to the northern and from east to west, whether it is um, concerns about folks coming up through farm through ranches in the southern part of the state to, uh, you know, the green chili, who's picking our green chili here in New Mexico, to um, to dreamers living in uh, various parts of the state who are actively involved in our in our uh, in our lives. That you know, I, I'm not putting that well, but like you know, we have professionals at every level. I think people tend to think of immigrants uh, as as you know not really filling our entire our entire community but in New Mexico certainly that is the case so this is this is essential for us and it is a, a crisis for us here in New Mexico that hasn't been addressed I, I love TJ's point that um, that there is the possibility for consensus here I mean I just remember the the Bush Republicans saying like we we want this too business wants it That's too. Right. I think it's very disingenuous, frankly, of Marco Rubio, who was very involved in the last major push for immigration reform to be talking about amnesty and like, oh, my stars and garters. I think what we're looking at there, um, unfortunately, is a Republican caucus. And this this is how politics work, right? They're looking for their pound of flesh here. A little. For other things. And so when they act like this can't be done, um, I think to Steve Pierce's point and knowing the history of the Republican Party, you should be able to get it done. It's what we're going to have to we're going to have to trade with each other in order to make that happen. That I think is the source of some heartburn. You know, Steve, TJ makes an excellent point. It seems to me the more I'm, I'm thinking about it, more Sophie's you know, making the point as well that let's assume there's some kind of success here. That would be an extraordinary leap forward for this country in one fell swoop, if you think about it, just some kind of immigration reform. But let me talk specifics with you, though, too. This is interesting. In case anybody watching doesn't know, this only applies to undocumented immigrants in the U.S. as of January 1st of this year. Yeah. That's, not a, that, that's a very, very key distinction. And like Sophie says, and TJ, the negotiation is going to start from there, so to speak. <laughs> so what, I'm curious to your sense of this as you're hearing the other two go through this. I'm cynical. I'm more cynical than TJ or Sophie. I, yeah. You know, we've seen this so many times before. One man's common sense is another man's lunacy. So it's, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll believe it. And I hope it happens. Mm-hmm. I hope everybody's right, but uh hope everybody takes this opportunity. But uh I don't know. 
it's, we've come off, you know, all these years of partisanship, even before Trump, and uh, it's only gotten worse and it's not going to get better overnight. I noticed in one of the national accounts I read about it, uh, Chuck Schumer, the, the Senate Republican, I mean, Senate Democratic uh, leader, majority leader, um, didn't seem real key on, uh, he said, well, we've got to deal with COVID-19 and some of this other stuff first. And uh, I think they may be punting it, uh, kicking the can down the road, as the saying goes. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and, Perhaps for good reason. So, uh, are, are, are we all? Uh, I, I remain very Steve, skeptical. Steve, are, are, is that skepticism? And you wouldn't be alone, by the way, on your skepticism. Yeah. Are we all triggered up by immigration? You think about it. We've been screaming at each other for like thirty years on this, with barely yeah. any movement. I, and I say again, if if something can crack here, I got to think it would work out for the Biden administration in tremendous ways. If you can take advantage of what little bipartisanship that comes early (laughs) in a situation and just try to do something with it. You know, well, one one uh, area where uh, there might be uh, uh, some cause for optimism is uh, the Dreamers, DACA. Um, You know, when you have this huge uh, bill with all these various aspects, which sometimes is necessary, of course, but I think if they could just do a separate thing on the Dreamers, make that uh, and, and DACA, I think they could get some bi- a lot of bipartisan support from right. that. That's right. And um, you start from there, and then uh, uh, you know maybe the amnesty work mm-hmm. wouldn't. I think too, though it's not it's not just Dreamers, but there's also I think an argument to be made, as has been made in the past, that many of our healthcare workers. Um, you know, are affected by this, affected by this issue. And right now, when you say we need to support our healthcare workers, there may be some room there. Um, you know, we, we really have, especially with some of the other immigration programs that have been constrained by the Trump administration, we have a lot of need for, um, for people who are working in these essential areas. And, and many of them are um, currently or potentially occupied jobs that are occupied by immigrants. That's a very good point. That's a very good point, Sophie. Um, interesting. It's going to be about filling jobs and getting needs met, partly. Uh, TJ, quick point here, too. We've got about a minute and a half or about a minute. Uh, the f- here's the path to a green card. Five years of paying taxes, passing a background check and other hurdles. You know, dreamers could apply immediately. That just came up just a second ago. And once the green card is issued, it's another three years to naturalize citizenship. And that's the eight years Biden's talking about. It's super aggressive when you think about it compared to what we've been used to for years and years and years and years. Is that number going to be a gag for folks? Is eight years just going to be a little too quick for some people out there? Well, I mean, this, too quick. It's interesting is because this has to be addressed immediately. I mean, I mean, right. I want the, the thing is, but to your point, 30 years, we've been waiting for a real solution on this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, eight years, man. Well, the, you know, the one thing too is with the dreamers, with the people who are undocumented in this country, if, if we expect them to actually come out and say, okay, we, we trust the United States government. Now we're going to register with the United States government because we trust you that you're not going to just uh, deport us. So you need somehow for the government to guard to garner that trust from the people that we're that we're speaking with plus also i'm going to go back to another point i, I don't we, we don't have much time uh we, 
we need these workers. I mean, there is so much hypocrisy right now, grandstanding about not needing. We need these workers to do the jobs in our food processing plants and jobs that, that other Americans will not take. And there's a huge amount of hypocrisy there that has to be addressed. Good point. Good final point on that one. This group returns one last time to talk about the FBI arrest of the leader of the Cowboys for Trump organization and lingering issues for Republicans who cozied up to the group. Well, we all know it, COVID-19 not going anywhere anytime soon, even though vaccines are rolling out uh, and people are getting vaccinated on a regular basis here in New Mexico, something that's going to take months to fully uh, fully roll out and get everybody who wants to be vaccinated, vaccinated. And so we're still dealing with all of the implications of that on a regular basis. Uh, several months ago, Host Gene Grant uh, held a Facebook Live where he talked to some local musicians, artists, about how they're weathering the storm. There's a, a musician relief fund that's been set up. And so if you care about local musicians and creatives and artists, we encourage you to uh, head there. You can find them online on Facebook uh, and other places. Um, and uh, But what we have learned, uh, especially recently, is that a lot of the, especially federal relief money from the CARES Act, from PPP, these things we hear, these grants, these other opportunities that workers and business owners have to get some relief really doesn't extend to folks like musicians who, of course, aren't able to tour, aren't able to hold concerts, uh, really have had their livelihoods um, damaged by the COVID-19 outbreak and that uh, inability to have those live gatherings and performances. Uh, and so there's just a lot of frustration there and a lot of thoughts about how this is going to linger even when those events can happen again, and it's probably never going to be quite the same. And so we wanted to dive into that a little bit more again this week, and we were lucky enough to catch up with Sydney Counts. She is a uh, a manager of a musical group, uh, uh, Dust City Opera, or Dust Bowl Opera, sorry, Dust Bowl Opera, uh, who that group was just about to go on their first big tour when everything got shut down, at least here in New Mexico, because of COVID-19. And so uh, correspondent Megan Camrick talked to her about just how hard this has been, why there's such a struggle to get some of that relief money, and what they uh, hope can be changed and fixed about that moving forward. So here now is that interview for you. Sydney Counts, thanks for joining us on New Mexico in Focus. Sydney, as the manager of a local musical group in Albuquerque, can you give us a rundown of how COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the musical scene in New Mexico for you and your group? Sure, of course. Um, I mean, everything is at a standstill right now. It's basically completely shuttered and it's been that way for uh, going on a year. Um, venues are closed. For live musicians, we rely on the ability to congregate in groups and without certainty around when we can do that again for the foreseeable future, we're out of work. And when the pandemic hit, Dust City Opera was just making the shift into being a touring band. How long has it been since the band has performed live? And what was the financial loss of investing in shows that you couldn't play? 
Um, really great questions. We we were just about to embark on our first major tour uh, the week that MLG announced the shutdown. Uh, I, we were days Governor. away from yes, we were days away from hitting the road and made the difficult decision to cancel everything. We had no idea what was going to happen or how long we were going to remain shuttered. Um, and I don't think I'll ever get over the, the impact of investing in a tour that we weren't able to, to take. Um, and beyond that, um, it, it wasn't like we could stay home and continue to perform here in our home state. Uh, we can't get together at all. Singing is a super spreader event. So we, mm. can't, um, we can't record, we can't rehearse. Um, and so we're not generating an income right now, like so many musicians uh, across the country and the world. Was this tour, give me a sense of where you guys were in terms of your um, ascent professionally, this was gonna be a sure. pretty big deal for you to be on this national tour? A absolutely. So the band started out in 2018 uh, and I took over management. In 2019, we had just been named Artist of the Year by Modern Musician. And that was giving us a ton of momentum going into 2020. Um, we were headed to South by Southwest, which I think um, was the first major event to cancel. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It was shocking <laughs> at the time. And we thought, can we still make this tour happen? Can we just go play all of our other stops? You know, we were going to go around. Um, certainly New Mexico and Texas over into Oklahoma. And we were just trying to wrap our heads around what, what is going on? How can we make this happen? Is it safe? Um, are, are we going to be able to come home if we leave the state? We just didn't understand quite the, the impact of, of COVID-19 at the time. Musical artists these days um, make the majority of their money performing live at venues. With virtually no live performances in New Mexico, the industry is turning to grants and funding from outside sources to pay the bills. Now, you and other people have been applying for this money. Have you been successful in getting in? No. Okay. No, and most of the musicians that I talk to and other people in our industry, keep in mind, it's not just musicians that are impacted. I'm a manager. There are, you know, stage crew, venue owners, uh, a lot of people beyond the performers are feeling the impact. And although there are grants out there, by and large, um, they're too small. Mm -hmm. they're, they're restricted to certain people. Either you have to be a performer or do a certain type of performance. Um, and, and many are, are depleted. Many of the grant opportunities are no longer available. So um, we've received very little funding. It's not, it's not enough. And um, certainly talking about the CARES grant, the most recent CARES grant, I don't know a single person like myself, a freelance worker, a musician, or somebody in our industry that received the money. And even if we had received it, we were capped at only getting $2,000. That isn't enough. Mm -hmm. That's, that's just, um, it's not enough. Do you, do, you don't know of any other musical groups that got accepted for the CARES grant? Not a single one, and I've been asking oh. around. Equity in some of these grants is an issue. The average payout for CARES was around $15,000. Compare that to getting $2,000. I mean, this is your livelihood, right? It's not just it like something on the side. Right, right, it is. I think it's a real shame um, 
our industry, the entertainment industry often is overlooked. And um, when we all think about getting through this pandemic, we're at home, what are we turning to? We're turning to entertainment. We're streaming TV, we're streaming music. So uh, I, I think people don't realize that the importance of keeping our industry alive, but when it comes time to fund us, we're overlooked time and time again. There's just not enough money for us. We also don't have the representation that we need. Freelance workers, there's nobody lobbying for us. Uh, we're not protected by a union. There's nobody speaking up for us at the government level saying funding needs to happen for these people. So we are um, often left out. Have you uh, and the band been able to take advantage of some, you know, there's been a number of musical groups who've done streaming concerts, streaming events. I know that's probably nowhere near the revenue you'd get in an in-person event, but have you been able to take advantage of any of that? You're right. And, and we have, um, we've been able to do a couple of streaming events in partnership with AMP Concerts and the Launchpad, but it's still not safe. Um, and we've had to turn down some of those because our band is made up of people from different households with different jobs and different risk levels. And it's really challenging, even though it's on screen for our viewers, it's still, there's still that risk of getting the band together to perform. Um, and they don't generate very much income for us. Uh, and it's just not the same energy as going to a show. People get really excited. They want to buy up all the merch. They want to buy more tickets. It's just not, it's just not the same. Yeah. What about funding from other sources? Is, is any of that viable? Sure. I've looked into, I want to say probably somewhere between 40 and 50 grants that um, would, we would somehow qualify for. Again, most of those are completely depleted. I had hopes mm -hmm. that in the new year with new budgets, there would be more funding opportunities. And I haven't really found much here in January for us. Also being in New Mexico, we're excluded from a lot of opportunities for people in our industry that are based in, let's say LA and California or in New York. Um, many of these grants are restricted by territory. So we're being mm. left out again, being here in New Mexico. I did not realize that. As you say, this goes beyond musical groups. I mean, there's a whole ecosystem, right? Yes. Around live music um, yes. that, enables live music to happen. So what is the impact there? Well, it's tough. Like if I wanted to apply for funding just for myself as a manager, um, I, I don't have a lot of options as a freelance worker. Um, many of the grants that are aimed towards the music industry are for musicians. They are not for venue owners. They are not for stage crew or sound engineers, agents, promoters. Um, so, so that's really challenging because I am impacted just the same as my musicians are impacted. And I think that's just another level, another layer of, of, of the economy that's being overlooked and left out. You've said that you feel ob obliterated and ignored, um, that the industry is ob being obliterated and ignored. I do feel that way. And, and I also feel that um, there's a lot of uncertainty around the future. We are very much, the live music industry is very much a future-based industry. It's January right now in normal times. I would be planning shows for this summer or even mm. the fall. So 
not only am can I you not, do it, that? I can't, I can't work now and I can't plan for the future. And so that uncertainty is, is creeping into, um, you know, the mental health of myself and others. Uh, a lot of people I reached out to about their funding, they said, well, yeah, I need money, but also emotionally I'm suffering, not just financially, mentally, the uncertainty is, is really, really scary for folks that don't know there's no end in sight. We can't even plan for the future right now. And it's really scary. Mm, I can imagine. And in the, you mentioned the last relief package by Congress, there's $15 billion that's set aside for music venues everywhere. It's important that small venues like the Launchpad or El Rey Theater get this money. But if the bands can't perform live at these, at these venues, do we know where this money will be going? I'm not sure. Uh, I feel like I'm in a, in a difficult situation because, um, of course, I want to see these venues make it out the other side. I want all of us to make it out the other side. But without bands coming out to perform, I'm not sure exactly where that money's going. I know they have staff to take care of. I personally know a lot of uh, the folks that work at El Rey and Launchpad, and I you know, hope to God that they're doing okay and being able to get by. Um, but that money is certainly not passing through those venues to people like me or the bands that I represent or the other musicians in the state. It's just not making an impact for us. What are some, uh, what are others involved in the music industry saying? I mean, frustration, anger, are people in the same boat as you all? Uh, a lot of people are in the same position and um, certainly people are frustrated. I, I wouldn't say I've heard a lot of anger more sadness and um, uncertainty, a deep sense of isolation. Uh, a mm. lot of people that choose this industry choose it because we're extroverts. We thrive on the energy of others and being isolated long-term without knowing when we can get together is a lot to process. Um, I think collectively we're in a trauma state and we can't even comfort one another. You know, we can't get together and say, it's gonna be okay. So I hear a lot of, of, of sadness and, and worry about what will happen. And when we do reopen, what is it gonna look like? Cause I don't think it will look the same. Um, mm. Will venues be able to pay pre-pandemic rates? Will concert goers come out and buy up enough tickets for us to continue to perform? We just, we don't know financially what it's gonna look like when we come out the other end. Have you guys been able to rehearse online? I've heard musicians say that's hard because there's a lag. So yeah. trying to sync with each other is we've, we've tried difficult. A few, we, that's a really good question. And uh, we've tried a few things. Dust City Opera, we're a pretty large ensemble. There are seven people, not including myself. So getting together in our home studio, um, even when we've done COVID testing and been really safe about it, it's kind of awkward. Um, it's, it's a lot of effort with very little return for us. Um, right now, the best that we can do is we're trying to piece together recorded material from pre-pandemic times and see if we can get that released to keep that fan connection alive. We're desperately trying to find ways to connect with our fans and keep that um, connection alive. But it's, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard right now. 
it's unsure exactly when it will be safe, as you say, for people to congregate in musical venues again. So other than the obvious financial help, what else would help people like you stay afloat while we weather the pandemic? Sure. Um, I, I think for me, what I think needs to happen is we need to see a lot more action at the federal level, um, at the national level. Um, it would be great if we had, let's say, like a national mask mandate, things that are going to set the, the pace for us to be able to come back together, a better vaccine rollout for the country, uh, mask mandate for the country, because when it does come time for us to start performing again, we can't tour if things are going to be different state to state. We need to have certainty that we can um, have across the board rules around um, you know, capacity limits for congregating, mask mandates, um, vaccines available to the public. I would like to see, I would like to see some action on that. And I'm hoping with the new administration, we'll see that. Well, and also there are other countries that do have funds to support artists right. and yep. performers. Um, and that's really helping in these times. And we've never really had a very robust infrastructure like that. We haven't. And it's really unfortunate because I think, um, again, I, I can't stress enough the importance of the arts for the community, especially in getting other people through the pandemic um, who turn to uh, the arts as an escape, whether it be sitting down and watching Netflix or putting on your headphones and listening to your favorite band. Well, and it's part such an intrinsic part of what makes New Mexico unique. Um, is our creative economy. So, and you all are part of that. Um, so it's not just oil and gas and other businesses that are suffering. It's, it's hurting everyone. And that's ultimately hurting New Mexico. So I'm hopeful we've already lost some organizations and I'm hopeful we can come through this and, and folks like you will once again be on stage live with your fans. I, ho I hope so too. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Sydney. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, we're about to send things back to the line. Before we do, want to make you aware uh, of a couple things. We talked early in the show at the beginning about the legislative session, and we are once again this year partnering up with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter to bring you great co coverage of the legislative session and government. We feel like it's especially important this year. There are pluses and minuses to a remote session. It's hard in a regular session for folks to get time off from work and other things to drive up to Santa Fe to have their voice heard. But we also know that connectivity is a huge issue in New Mexico. You heard TJ Trout talk about that earlier. And so there are still people that will be shut out of the process. So we wanna make sure we do all we can to not only bring you information about what's going on there, but also make the information accessible so that you all can make smart decisions. So be looking for that reporting uh, from KUNM, from ourselves, and from the Santa Fe Reporter, and uh, No More Normal, which is a podcast we started as your New Mexico government last year at the beginning of the legislative session. It's a podcast that we, we work with those partners on, and it is kicked back up. Uh, and deals with a lot of different issues. Um, there is a focus on, on COVID and the inequities that the pandemic have laid bare, how we deal with those things, but there will always be a component over the course of the next couple months on the legislative session that comes out on Sundays 
wherever you get your podcasts. So rate, subscribe, review, uh, let us know what you are seeing and hearing and what questions you have that we can follow up on. So that's No More Normal. You can get that wherever you find your podcasts, also called No Mo No, uh, which seems like it should roll off the tongue, but I always find a way to mess it up. But uh, we encourage you to check that out. And right now, again, we're going to head back to the line. We're going to talk a little bit again about the big week on the national level, but there are some local ties, of course, to a new presidency and Joe Biden's uh, start of his presidency. Um, Tangential to that, uh, there was a whole lot of news coverage this week about Cowboys for Trump leader Coy Griffin, also an Otero County commissioner, who has been very vocally supportive of President Trump, but uh, the rhetoric does not end there. He infamously in the past said the only good Democrat was a dead Democrat. He told NFL players who want to kneel for the national anthem that they should go back to Africa. And he uh, also said uh, he was there for the protests uh, in the nation's capital on January 6th and recorded himself for social media saying blood will be spilt. Then in an Otero County Commission meeting, he talked about he was going to be back for the inauguration and he was taking some firearms. Uh, He always walks back these things uh, when he says them and people get upset by them. But uh, again, this week, uh, things changed for for Mr. Griffin when he was arrested, uh, in part for his participation in the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. A lot of talk still about how some of the most high-profile Republicans in our state, Steve Pierce, the Republican Party chairman, newly elected congressional member Yvette Harrell from the 2nd Congressional District, uh, who at one point was touting um, Mr. Griffin's uh, endorsement and Cowboys for Trump. Um, there have been social media posts that have been pulled down, but not full denouncements. People want uh, to hear from them about what they think is the final straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of this dangerous political rhetoric from Mr. Griffin. So we're going to round all that out in this line segment to round out the show this week. Here back now, Gene Grant and The Line. Federal authorities arrested Cowboys for Trump leader Coy Griffin last Sunday and branded him a threat to the community after he bragged at an Otero County Commission meeting that he was going to take a 357 Henry big boy rifle and another 357 handgun in his car to Washington. The FBI took notice, got an arrest warrant for Mr. Griffin. They put him in cuffs and in jail, saying his threats have to be taken seriously. That's news to Steve Pierce and Yvette Harrell, who have offered milk toast criticisms of Mr. Griffin's previous violent rhetoric, but especially in Ms. Harrell's case, welcomed the support of Cowboys for Trump, didn't she? They're backing away now, quietly. Sophie, purely as a political move, will this sort of soft rebuke save face with the far right of the party, or is the damage done for Ms. Harrell in 2022? I think that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's uh, far enough away in people's in memories. political terms, it, exactly. Right? Yeah, it's going to matter what <laughs> she does in the in in the in between. Um, I think that it is a, it's a dangerous situation for her, depending on what Griffin does. You know what happens with him going forward. But one of the things that I think is sort of remarkable, and there's there's been a fair amount of discussion about this online, is you know here's this guy who's gotten away with it. Um, we, I think of another 
Taylor Griffin, Kathy Griffin, who got a visit from the Secret Service yes. for holding up a dummied up, you know, head of Donald Trump, sort of John the Baptist style. And uh, and she got a visit right away. And this guy's this guy's been getting away with, for, with it for a long time. And then suddenly it is serious. It is real. That must have been a real stunner for him. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also for other people who have been engaged in that kind of public rhetoric. Hey, TJ, interestingly, when I think about KOB, you guys have had Steve Pierce on a ton, uh, and rightfully so as the local station here. Any sense of how conservatives see him in this whole situation so far? What's the feedback you're getting from your, from your listeners and callers? I've not gotten much feedback about Steve Pierce. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, quite frankly, I've had, I have not had him on for a while. Mm -hmm. So I guess that, that's on me. Um, I'll tell you what, man, I think two Wednesdays ago, I think uh, the entire tide has shifted. Um, uh, and to our point, uh, you know, we, we didn't see any we didn't see any further violence on, on Inauguration Day or at the statewide level. And I think that was in particular because of the violence mm -hmm. uh, two days ago, because I think it was so outrageous. Um, back to Coy Griffin. I mean, we, we, we've known we, we've known what's going on with him for a long time. Uh, you know, I mean, it's no surprise to anybody. Uh, what he's been saying, uh, his words have been uh, tinged with, with with violence or the implication of violence for a long time. I think it just took what happened again two Wednesdays ago for people to go, well, maybe he shouldn't have been saying these things, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, Sophie, to your point, uh, whether this is going to stick with Yvette Harold, I'll tell you right now, I think, uh, I think uh, the Dems are salivating right now. Uh, at this and looking at this, well, there, there is our, there is our campaign issue coming up in 2022. They're not going to let, they're not going to let this go. I don't see how they could possibly let this go. Mm -hmm. It's just too big of an issue. Mm -hmm. Steve, when you really, when you tally up the, the <laughs> scorecard here for Mr. Griffin, I mean, we're talking about the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. He gets kicked off an Indian reservation. Who, who's ever been kicked off an Indian reservation? I can't think of one person in my yeah. life, you know. Uh, going back, telling black people to go back, to move back to Africa. This has been going on for like four months. I mean, we suffered an entire summer of this. I, I don't understand where the, the, the county commission might be coming from on this. I, you, know, I, I, you know, patience is one thing, but how long can they let this go on? Well, I, I, in the terms of the Otero County Commission, the other two members, as we all know, have been... Uh, uh, saying that he should resign. And if not, they're going to support Hector Balderas and trying to have him removed. Right. I'm not sure what the law is about the removing. I may involve a jury trial and stuff, but it seemed like that. I, I don't know. I think he's law and they're very conservative people. These aren't liberal cucks or anything. Right. Uh, right. These are uh, true conservatives uh, who, uh, and true uh, Trump conservatives who are sick of the guy. And they, they're the ones who work with him. So, uh, yeah, I, I think his days are numbered there. I don't know. I don't know how the court case is going to turn out or anything. Mm -hmm. I was shocked when I learned that uh, that Coy Griffin uh, actually used to work for Disney World right. in uh, Paris as a cowboy, you know, a Disney cowboy. And it's and true. My, my first my first reaction was maybe he quit uh, when they came out with the movie Pocahontas and he found out it wasn't about Elizabeth Warren. Um, but uh, <laughs> good one, you know, dude. Good I, one. The, the guy's the guy's just amazing, and uh, I, I think his time is up. Yeah. Hey, Sophie, you mentioned, uh, and and Steve just mentioned it as well, uh, the idea that uh, I'm sorry, his last Steve's last joke just kind of blipped me out of my head there, but he, it was it was so awesome. <laughs> 
the idea that you know you one can be so controversial for so long and not have consequences I think this is what people are looking for is consequences all right it's one thing to be a boot a now bootless cowboy arrested by the FBI but I think you know how about Mr. Balderas where was he four weeks ago yeah he's got a stiff letter out there now saying you need to you know rein it in or we're going to do something about it but where was this six weeks ago from him well, I mean, I think we, we, when we talk about consequences, there are so many different layers and levels of consequences, right? And and part of that is because of the First Amendment and our, our country's ongoing co commitment uh, to the First Amendment. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this is a person who made statements that I think in, in an older context were distasteful, uh, may have been, you know, upsetting, um, but that didn't didn't uh, as clearly as immediately seem to rise to the level of the shouting shouting fire in the crowded movie house, um, which is the, you know, one of the standards that we talk about when we talk about the first amendment. Um, and so, you know, why were there not consequences amongst the voters in which the voters in Otero County said, we're not interested in doing this anymore. I mean, that's certainly a very um, legitimate, not really involving the first amendment kind of thing. Let's just vote the guy out. Why weren't there, consequences in the did, media. Did he win? A, was he up for election this in 2020? He's, I don't, I don't believe so, but this, he didn't just start. Because in 2018, nobody knew who he was. He didn't yeah. sprout, yeah. but he didn't sprout horns immediately. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's the consequence of the voters. There's the consequence in the community there. You know, there are whole levels. What, you know, why is he getting the attention? I'm, I'm part of me when we, I knew we were going to talk about him today was a little sad that we were going to give him more oxygen. Um, yeah. Although we seem to, be condemning him, which is, I'm okay with that. Um, but, but, you know, there are limitations on what government can do um, because of the power and the importance of the First Amendment. And you sort of watch for like, okay, have we crossed the line? Do we think we've crossed the line? And it may be that when, you know, this all shakes out, it could be that the courts find that he didn't cross the line, even though it's his, his statements are extraordinarily distasteful and many people that they were an incitement to violence. And, and you know, we're going to have to see where the courts establish that line in his case. That is I'm so appreciative of you bringing that up. There are free speech issues and First Amendment issues, no doubt, right. as we kind of mm. guffaw here. I, I appreciate that. And, hey, I want to go. I want to go. Apply just when we want them to. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. Thank you. And, and that's, you know, this is why we have attorneys like you. To bring balance to the situation. <laughs> uh, I want to go around the horn here real quick. Uh, TJ, starting with you. Yep. Obviously, we've got fencing up around the roundhouse. Um, no one's liking that, but we got to have it. Uh, we didn't have we didn't have problems, but we we do still have open carry in the roundhouse. And I don't think that's going anywhere. Certainly, I'm not questioning that. But what's your sense of and for all of you, what's your sense of how we've approached the potential problems with the roundhouse and how we or how we're dealing with it? Well, I, I think uh, I think the uh, the response uh, after again two, I keep bringing up two Wednesdays ago was a completely uh, uh, legitimate and uh, and responsible thing to do. I mean, you know, you have you have threats all over social media saying that we're going to you know we're we're coming. You know, what what are you supposed to do? Of course, mm -hmm. of course, you have to do something like that. And again, I'm going to shift gears a little bit one more time sure. because I look at the broader picture here. I am I'm so upset with with certain proponents of the media right now. I I, I was I, I'm just um, spitting angry. That's how angry I am with some of these people for perpetuating uh, some of the lies and the mistruths 
that have led up to what has happened and have caused us to have to put fencing around our roundhouse and our, and our beloved sacred places of government based on lies and lies were perpetuated from the top down and then with certain elements of the media perpetuating and enabling the lies. A beautiful lie. That's note. why we are, that's mm -hmm. why we are where we are right now. I, I am incensed about this. DJ Trout, Sophie Martin, Steve Terrell, I can't thank you guys enough. Thanks for everyone for reading up and offering your thoughts. My final thoughts in a minute. All right, that's going to do it for this week. We appreciate you tuning in as always, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we ask you to please, if you subscribe to this podcast, uh, leave us a review or drop us a question uh, about anything you've heard. We'd love to have that interaction with you. You can also do that on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Uh, we really enjoy having that feedback loop and to get your thoughts on what we've covered and what we should be covering uh, and so we encourage you to reach out there and do that. And if you aren't already subscribing, please do. Please let your friends and family and loved ones know to subscribe. Uh, it really helps us out a bunch. Uh, we, I want to make you aware of something else as well. We talked about PFAS contamination earlier in the show. We've gotten a bunch of questions since we put out our report this week on the Groundwater War website. So we're looking to get those questions answered in an upcoming Facebook, Instagram Live, still working on the details. But if you have questions for us about PFAS, what they are, why they're so dangerous, what the health risks are, how New Mexico is handling the known PFAS contamination, especially around Cannon and Holloman Air Force bases, reach out to us. And again, you can do that by leaving us an audio message here on the podcast. You can go to uh, any of the social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Leave us your question there. We'll compile those together and get you some answers. So thank you very much for always supporting and listening to the things that we do here. We feel like this is a huge and important story, and we need to keep the accountability out there. Uh, right now, we'll leave you for the week with, as usual, some final thoughts from Gene Grant, specifically around the start of the legislative session uh, it seems like we say it every year, but this will be a monumental legislative session, not only because of the uniqueness of it with a virtual uh, session, but also just the important issues that lawmakers are going to have to take up. Some tough decisions, some important decisions that will affect each and every one of us. And so Gene has some thoughts on that, and we will, of course, be keeping track of all things legislature over the course of the next two months. With that, we will bid you adieu until next week. But again, thanks for tuning in and have a terrific weekend. Stay safe, everyone. I don't know about you, but for some reason, I've never been so grateful for a legislative session to start. Strange as that may sound, the return to some form of normalcy has been soothing to my political junkie soul. Better yet, it's the home front. And to me, the only problems worth worrying about are the ones that are closest to your home and your wallet. Now, there's work to be done, but as the kids say, everyone in the legislative body is woke now. Now, what excites me most is the energy and ideas that come with new seat holders and committee chairs, because we have leaps that need to be made that are so huge, we can only get there with bold strokes that move the ball downfield quickly. Now, yes, process is important with our legislative setup, and there was an honest effort to implement something that allows the process to be both accessible and transparent 
as reasonably possible. Now, it remains to be seen if the steps taken to keep everyone COVID-free while serving the needs of a participatory citizen legislature, if that all worked out, but that's a good problem because it's our problem. Thank you.